You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and Rudolf Steiner Press. .com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English, and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 233A, by Rudolf Steiner. Ten lectures, two small cycles, one of six lectures, one of four lectures. I've finished the first one, Rosicrucianism and Modern Initiation, Mystery Centers of the Middle Ages, and I'm on the second one. Technically, I'm on Lecture 8, but it is the second lecture of the second set, entitled The Easter Festival and the History of the Mysteries. Again, Lecture 8, given in Dornach on the 20th of April, 1924. The translations in this book are by Mary Adams and Frederick Amrine. We may say that the original idea of festivals was to make people lift their eyes, turning them from dependence on earthly things to dependence on supra-earthly ones. And it is consideration of the Easter festival that can especially bring about such thoughts. In the course of the last three, four, or five hundred years, the civilization of the world has gone through a psychic and spiritual evolution which has inclined humanity to turn its attention more and more away from its connection with cosmic forces and powers. Human attention has been restricted increasingly to the study of those conditions prevailing between humans and earthly forces and powers. It is also the case that with those means of knowledge, which are considered legitimate today, it is impossible to keep other connections in view. If anyone in pre-Christian times, or even in the first Christian centuries, who was closely associated with the mysteries, could have experienced our present-day knowledge, they would not in the least have understood, if they approached things with the thoughts and feelings of those days, how it was possible for people to live without a consciousness of their supra-earthly, their cosmic connections. I might give an outline here of many things which you will find more fully described in different cycles of lectures. But as these present lectures are intended to give a more intimate understanding of the thought of Easter, I naturally cannot bring forward every particular. I can only hint at how things are. If we were to transfer ourselves in thought into the various ancient religious systems of the past, you might choose as an example that one most familiar to modern people, the ancient Hebrew-Jewish system. We would find, when these ancient systems are monotheistic, the worship of the one Godhead, this is that Godhead of whom, in accordance with Christian tradition, we call the Father. Now in all those religions in which the thought of this Father God lived, there has existed, more or less, but especially among the priests of the mysteries, a connection between this God and the cosmic lunar forces, a connection with everything streaming down to earth as a force from the moon. Of this ancient consciousness of the connection between humans and the moon forces, hardly anything has remained other than the stimulus given to the poetic fancy of the soul by the moon, 
and the number of months in the human gestation period in accordance with the ten lunar months as reckoned in medicine. But in the older ideas concerning such things, a clear consciousness did exist. That when the human being came down from the spiritual world, where he had lived in prenatal life as psychic and spiritual being, into physical life, he was filled with and strengthened by impulses that streamed to him from the moon. When someone considers what it is that has formed us as a living being, of nutrition and breathing, and as forces of growth generally, we must not look to the forces of the earth, but rather to forces outside the earth. It is easy for us to see how in looking to earthly forces these are connected with us. But if our body were not held together by forces outside the earth, if it did not receive its form from forces beyond the earth, what would the mere earthly forces do toward its preservation and cohesion? The moment the non-earthly forces, those coming from beyond the earth, leave it, the body is exposed to the forces of the earth. Then it perishes, disintegrates, and becomes a corpse. The forces of the earth can only make corpses of us. They cannot construct our human form. Those forces living in humans, by which we are raised above what is earthly, so that between birth and death we can live on earth as a coherent, organic form, and not succumb to the forces of earth that lay hold of us at death and destroy us, against which we wage a lifelong struggle here, for they must be struggled against. These forces we owe to the influences of the lunar world. If on the one hand we can state theoretically that the moon contains the forces by which the human body is formed, we must realize, on the other hand, that ancient religions reverenced these as the divine father forces, which were the means of bringing us into physical existence at birth. The ancient Hebrew initiate had a distinct consciousness of the fact that the forces leading us to earthly existence streamed into us from the moon, maintained us on earth, and were torn from us as a physical human being when we passed through the gates of death. A kindly feeling of love for these father forces, a looking up to them in the practice of their cult by means of prayers, etc., was the content of certain ancient monotheistic religions. These ancient monotheistic religions were more consistent than most people think. Such matters are very incorrectly represented in history because history can only go by external documents, not by what is observed with the help of spiritual vision. Those religions which looked up to the moon and to that which existed in the moon as spiritual beings belonged to a later period. Compared with the opinions held by them concerning the moon, those held by earlier religions concerning the solar forces and even the Saturnine forces, of which I shall have something to say later, were very clearly defined. 
but they concern themselves principally with the solar forces. With these early religions we enter an historical field of study for which external documents no longer exist, lying as they do many thousands of years earlier than the foundation of Christianity. In order to provide this age with the name, I have called it in my book titled The Secret Doctrine, The Old Indian, which was followed by the Old Persian Age. In these civilizations, human development was very different from what it later became, and religious beliefs depended upon this development. During the last 2,000 years and more, we have developed so that we are not aware that a split has occurred in our earthly evolution. This has hardly been noticed. What takes place in the greater part of present-day humanity inwardly at about their thirtieth year has also hardly been noticed. It has remained to a great extent in the subconscious. It has not entered into human consciousness. Conditions were very different in a humanity that lived eight or nine thousand years before the foundation of Christianity. The development of individuals was then more continuous up to about the age of thirty. With the thirtieth year, a powerful metamorphosis took place. What I have now to say about this change has naturally to be spoken of somewhat radically, but these simple descriptions are in accordance with the facts that concern us at the moment. In those remote times, the following might happen. Someone might have contracted a friendship with another before his thirtieth year, who was considerably younger than they, perhaps three or four years younger. This person shortly afterward experienced the change that took place about the age of thirty. It might happen that these two individuals, not having seen each other for a long time, that the one who had experienced the change at his thirtieth year was spoken to by the other without his knowing who they were. The individual's memory had been so completely changed. I have had to put this in the language of today so it may strike you as being somewhat crude. In olden times, the control of certain arrangements stood in close connection with the mystery schools, and by these, in the small societies then existing, a register of the lives of the young people was kept, because they themselves forgot, owing to the great alteration that had taken place in them. They had to be taught again what they experienced in life before the thirtieth year. These individuals then knew, I have become a quite different being in my thirtieth year. I must go to the registry, a modern expression, of course, in order to learn what I had previously experienced. This is actually what happened. Through instructions they received, at the same time they were told, before the thirtieth year the lunar forces worked in you exclusively. After attaining this age, the solar forces entered into the development of your earthly life. The solar forces work on us with an entirely different purport than the lunar forces. What does present-day humanity know of the solar forces? Only the outer physical part. We know that they warm us, that they cause us to perspire. We know, besides this, that people practice sunbathing, that there is something therapeutic connected with the forces of the sun. 
but all this we learn in a merely external way. We have no idea what the forces that are spiritually connected with the Son do to us. Julian the Apostate, the last of the heathen Caesars, had experienced something of these forces in the last lingering note of the mysteries. And just when he desired to make proof of these experiences, he was murdered on his expedition into Persia. So powerful in the early Christian centuries were the forces which desired all knowledge of such things to be lost. It is therefore not to be wondered at that even today no knowledge concerning them can be acquired. While the lunar forces are those which determine what we are, which permeate us within inward necessity as to our actions and determine our instincts, our temperament, our emotions, and the nature of our physical and the etheric bodies, generally the spiritual solar forces free us from this compulsion. They caused this necessity or compulsion to dissolve, as it were, and we became really a free being through the solar forces. In that ancient time to which I referred, the difference between these two forces in human evolution was strictly defined. In his thirtieth year, a person then became sun person, someone free. Up to our thirtieth year, this was a lunar person who was not free. Today these two conditions slide into one another. Today the solar forces work along with the lunar forces even in childhood, and the lunar forces continue to work on into later years. So that today these two things, compulsion or necessity and freedom, work into one another. This was not always the case. In the early prehistoric times of which we are speaking, the action of the sun and that of the moon were absolutely distinct in the course of human life. This is why it was said at that time, concerning the greater part of humanity, someone was born not once, but twice. For it was held to be abnormal, something pathological, if someone did not experience this great change of life in their thirtieth year. It came about in the course of human evolution that the second of these births, they were spoken of as the lunar birth and the solar birth, that the solar birth was no longer so noticeable in humans, and certain ceremonies were carried out, certain exercises and actions were performed on those who desired initiation into the mysteries. Such persons then experienced, in the mysteries, what could no longer be experienced generally, and then they became the, in quotes, twice-born. When this expression, twice-born, is found in Oriental literature today, it is misleading. Any Oriental scholar, any expert in Sanskrit might be asked, I think Professor Beck is present here, and you can ask him, if it is not the case that as a matter of fact no Oriental science can clearly and distinctly put before you in a few words what the content of the expression twice-born really is. Formal explanations certainly exist aplenty, but what it means in substance, no one knows. Only those who are aware that it reaches back to a real experience understand the reality I have just explained to you.
In such things, spiritual observation alone can speak. And once it is spoken, I would like to ask all of those who hold with what can be learned from documents, with everything external science can discover, I would like to ask, taking for granted that science has gone to work in an unprejudiced manner, if this science does not corroborate in every particular the investigations made by spiritual science. Your attention must, however, be directed to certain things which take precedence over all documentary science. For the understanding of life, of humanity, cannot be gained by a science of documents. Let us turn our gaze back to a very far-off age, when people spoke of the lunar birth of humans as creation through the Father. With regard to the solar birth, people were quite clear that in the spiritual sunlight the power of Christ, the Son, S-O-N, was active and that this was the power that freed us. Consider for a moment what this force, the solar force, does. It is the force that enables us as humans on earth to make something of ourselves. We would have been strictly confined within an unchangeable, natural, not fateful necessity if the liberating solar forces had not dissolved this necessity through their influence. This fact was known to those who held the more ancient opinions concerning the world. They looked up to the sun, S-U-N, and said, This eye of the world from which the power of Christ streams forth, E-Y-E, is the cause of my not having to remain always under the iron necessity with which I was born from out of the forces of the moon, as one whose whole life had to evolve under compulsion. It is the force of Christ looking down on me through that cosmic solar eye, E-Y-E, that enables me to make something of myself during my life on earth, through my inner freedom, something I could not have been through the lunar forces which placed me here. This consciousness that we could transform ourselves, could make something out of ourselves, is what people saw in the forces of the sun. I would like to add here, but only in parentheses, that Saturn was also looked up to as a third source of birth, In the Saturn forces, these individuals saw all that preserved them when they passed through the gate of death, the third earthly metamorphosis. Being born on the earth means being born through the moon. The second birth means birth through the sun. The third birth means Saturnine birth or earthly death. Humanity was upheld here by the mighty forces of Saturn, forces then holding sway at the extreme limit of the planetary system of the earth. These forces preserved us, carried us out into the spiritual world and provided a context for our being when the third metamorphosis took place. This was absolutely the mental outlook of the people of those ancient times. But human evolution goes on. A time arrived when it was no longer known in the mysteries how the solar forces affected humankind. Knowledge concerning these forces was preserved longest among the medical workers in the mysteries. For the forces which in our ordinary development give us freedom and the possibility of making something out of ourselves, 
the solar forces or the forces of Christ, also live under various conditions in certain plants and in other earthly beings and things, and reveal in these earthly things properties of healing. Generally speaking, all sense of the connection with the sun was lost to humanity, and while for a considerable time the consciousness still remained that humanity is dependent on the lunar forces or father forces, all consciousness of our dependence, or rather our liberation by means of the solar forces, had long been lost. What we call the forces of nature today, almost the only ones we speak of when discussing our conceptions of the world, are only lunar forces that have become entirely abstract. But the solar forces were still known to one, even Jesus of Nazareth, the bearer of the Christ, who lived his life in accordance with them. He had to know them because he was ordained to receive these forces into his own body as they streamed to earth from the sun, S-U-N, forces which humans had only been able to come in touch with in the ancient mysteries when they looked up to the sun. I explained this in the last lecture. What was of greatest importance in the founding of Christianity was this, that in the thirtieth year of his life a change took place in the body of Jesus of Nazareth similar to that change which in primeval times took place in everyone, only it was but the reflection, as it were, of the spiritual sun that shone into us, while now the original Lord of the Son, the Christ Himself, came down into human evolution and took up His abode in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. This fact lies behind the mystery of Golgotha as the primal event affecting all earthly life. You will realize the full connection of these things when we now consider how the festival of Easter which in those days was an entirely human concern, was actually carried out in the ancient mysteries. The festival of Easter was in fact an initiation. The ceremony progressed through three stages. The first requirement, before the neophytes could attain true knowledge, before they could be initiated, was that through all that came to them from the side of the mysteries, they should be made so humble that people today can hardly form an idea of this deep inner humility. People imagine today that they have the appearance as regards knowledge of being exceedingly modest, while for those who can see into the matter, they are really possessed by pride. When about to enter upon initiation, we have in the first place to feel convinced that we cannot consider ourselves to be human at all, but rather we say, I have first to become human. It cannot be said of people today that at any point in their lives they consider themselves not to be human. But this was the first demand made on them, that they should hold themselves not to be human and should address themselves as follows. I certainly was human, before I came down into an earthly body. In pre-earthly existence, I was a being of soul and spirit. The soul and spirit then entered a physical body, which it had received from its parents. 
The soul and spirit did not clothe themselves with the physical body. That would be to express it incorrectly. Rather, it permeated itself with this physical body. We really have no idea of the manner and means by which the soul and spirit in the course of long ages permeates the physical, permeates the nerves and sensory systems, permeates the rhythmic system, the digestive system, and the human limbs. We have no idea of this. We know very well that we are able to perceive the physical world by means of our senses. But what are persons capable of when they have reached the point where they have permeated their physical body so profoundly with their psychic and spiritual nature that they consider the development to be complete when they are fully evolved, fully developed humans? What are they then capable of? At present, They certainly can see external objects, they can hear external sounds, perceive through their skin things warm or cold, smooth or rough. They can perceive things outwardly, but they cannot perceive inwardly. They cannot look into themselves with their eyes, they can at most remove the skin from a dead body and think that they see into it, but they do not do so really. It is childish to think, for instance, Here before me is a house, it has windows, but I cannot see through them. So I will take all kinds of instruments, and if I am strong enough, smash the house down, and then I will have only a heap of broken bricks before me, and these ruins are all I see. This is what people do today. They flay, they dissect people in order to learn about them. But by such means they learn nothing. It is not the person at all they learn to know by such methods. If you desired really to know something about the human being, you have to be able to turn your eyes inward and view them exactly as we view them today when we direct our eyes to them outwardly. And in the same way you have to hear inwardly with your ears. All these activities taken together, those of the eyes, the ears, the whole skin as organ of touch, the organs of smell, etc., All these were called in the mysteries the door to the human, the portal of the human. Initiation depended principally upon a person becoming aware that they knew nothing at all of human nature. Therefore, as they had no self-consciousness of human nature, they could not be human. They had first to learn to look inward through their senses as they ordinarily look outward. This was the first stage or degree of initiation in the ancient mysteries. As soon as the neophyte learned to look thus inward, in that same moment they became conscious of their pre-earthly existence. At that moment they knew, I am now, quote, in my soul and spirit, close quote. The ordinary person looks outward, bracket, yellow arrow, shading towards the outside, close bracket, referring to plate 10. But instead of this, the neophytes and the mysteries learned to look inward, bracket, red arrow, toward the inner, close bracket. In this inward gazing, they became aware of what has entered into them in their pre-earthly existence, the green part, what it passed into them through their eyes, their ears, their skin, and so on. 
They were aware of these things, and through this they were also aware of their pre-earthly existence. At this stage they were told that they would learn to know what we call natural science. When we study natural science today, how do we do it? We are led to observe the things of nature, to describe them, and so on. But this is much the same as if I were to meet somebody again whom I had known long ago, and somebody were to insist, you have to forget everything you did in company with this person. On seeing them again, you are not to recall the intercourse you had with them. It is unbelievable that responsible people would do such a thing. I can indeed believe that occasionally this might be agreeable, but under such conditions life could not go on. This is imposed on us today simply through the laws of civilization. For we know the kingdoms of nature. We knew them from their spiritual side before we came down to earth. Today we are told to forget all that we knew of the mineral plant and animal world before we came down to earth. Whereas the ancient initiates taught us about them in what was called the first stage of the mysteries. The initiate said, Look at this piece of quartz. And then they did everything they could that might enable the neophytes to recall what they had known about quartz before they came down to earth, what they had known, say, of the lily, the rose, etc. What was thus imparted as knowledge of nature was a remembrance, a recognition. And anyone who had learned the teaching regarding nature as remembrance of what they had seen before they descended into earthly life was received into the second degree. In the second degree, the pupil learned music, which at that time was architecture, geometry, surveying, etc. For what did this second degree of initiation contain? It comprised all that someone perceived when they not only looked inward into themselves with their eyes or listened inwardly with their ears, but when they actually entered into themselves. Then they said to the neophytes, seeking initiation, You are now entering into the grotto of the human temple. Now they learned to know this grotto of the human temple. It consisted of their physical bodies that were permeated by psychic and spiritual forces, that which was human before they descended into earthly life. Into this they now entered. They were told that this hidden place had three chambers. The first was the chamber of thought. There they learned all that was connected with this. Indeed, seen from outside, the head is small. But when someone enters and sees it from within, it it. it is as vast as the whole universe. Here they learn to know their spiritual nature. This was the first chamber. In the second chamber they learned to know feeling. The third chamber was where they learned to know the will. They then learned how individuals are organized according to their instruments of thought, feeling, and will. They learned what was of value on earth. Knowledge of nature was of value not only on earth. We had already acquired knowledge of nature before we descended to earth. But here we must remember that houses are not built above in the spiritual world as they are here with the help of earthly architecture. Over there is music, but it is spiritual melos, earthly music, 
as something projected into earthly air. It is a projection of heavenly music, but as experienced by humans, it is earthly. It is the same when we measure things here on earth. We measure earthly space. The art of measuring geometry or surveying is an earthly science. It was important that those seeking initiation in the second degree should be made to realize that all talk of knowledge gained by merely earthly means, unless connected with geometry, architecture, or the art of surveying, is nonsense. That true natural science is a recollection of pre-earthly knowledge, and that geometry, architecture, music, and the science of measuring are sciences that have to be learned here on earth. Thus, in the second degree of initiation, the neophytes descended into their own selves and learned to know the individuals of the three chambers in respect of the single earthly incarnation, as they would otherwise learn to know them from outside, without descending into their inner being. In the third degree, the neophytes learned to know others, not simply by sinking down into themselves, by getting to know themselves as spiritual beings. But when this spiritual part of them learned to know the body, therefore in all the ancient mysteries, this degree was known as the gate of death. Here they learned how it is with us when we lay aside our earthly body. Only there is a difference between actual death and what was experienced during initiation. Why this must be I will explain in the next lecture. At present, I only mention the fact. When we actually die, we lay aside our physical body. We are no longer bound to it, nor do we follow any longer the forces of the earth, having been freed from them. But while still bound to our physical body, as was the case in olden times at initiation, we had to attain liberation from the body, which at death comes of itself, and had to maintain it for a certain time through our own inner power. The attainment of those strong powers by which we are able to maintain our souls in freedom apart from the body was necessary to initiation. It is these that give us a higher knowledge concerning the things we can never perceive through our senses, never think through our understanding. They place us as human in the spiritual world, as the physical body places us as human in the physical world. We had then advanced so far as to be able to realize that we were humans of soul and spirit, to know that we had been initiated while still in earthly life. From this time onward, the earth for the initiate was as a star existing outside humanity. And in the ancient mysteries we had, before all else, to learn to live with the sun, S-U-N, instead of with the earth. We knew what we had received from the sun and how the solar forces worked in us. This third degree that I have just described was followed by a fourth. It affected the people seeking initiation in the following way. When on earth a person eats vegetables or game, when we drink various things, we know that such things were outside us and that now they are within us. We breathe the air. At first it is outside, then within us, then outside again. We are so closely bound up with the forces of the earth 
that we bear within us earthly substances and forces which otherwise were outside us. It was clearly explained to those seeking initiation in ancient times. Before initiation, you are a bearer of earth, of vegetables, game, pork, etc. But once you have been initiated in the third degree, and when all those things have been imparted that can be imparted to someone who is free of the body, you are no longer a bearer of cabbage, pork, or veal, but rather you become a bearer of those things which the solar forces give to you. What the solar forces give spiritually was called in all the mysteries Christos. Therefore the neophyte who had surmounted the first three degrees of initiation, though on earth they might feel themselves to be a bearer of cabbages, they knew that they were a bearer of the solar forces and that he was called a Christophorus. In nearly all the ancient mysteries, this was the name for those who had entered the fourth degree. In the third degree, certain things had to be grasped. Above all, the neophytes had, principally, to realize that in moments of knowledge, desire for the physical body must cease, that as regards their physical bodies they belong to the earth, but that really the earth has only to do with the destruction of their physical bodies, not with its construction. Now they learn to know the constructive forces that originate in the cosmos, but now they learn something in addition, especially when they became Christophori, that spiritual forces are at work also in the matter of the earth that are invisible to earthly view. If someone of those former ages had been addressed in the words of today, things would have been explained somewhat as follows. Parenthesis, the sense would certainly have been made clear to the neophytes, but to you I can only say these things in the language of today, not in that of former times. Close parenthesis. If you would know the teaching concerning substances, how these unite and separate, you have to look up to the spiritual forces that permeate all substance from out of the cosmos. This you cannot do unless initiated. For this you have to have been initiated in the fourth degree. You must be able to perceive with the forces appertaining to solar existence. Only then can you study chemistry. Suppose that someone today wishing to take a degree in chemistry or in pharmacy had first to submit to the necessity of feeling as a cabbage feels with regard to the forces of the sun. How absurd this would seem, but this was a fact. It was made absolutely clear that with such forces as people have in life, and which are generally employed during life, only geometry, surveying, music and architecture can be studied, not chemistry. If people speak of studying chemistry today, they speak in an entirely external way. All talk of chemistry has been entirely external ever since the time when the ancient initiatory wisdom was lost. It is enough to drive to desperation those who really wish to know when they have to learn modern official chemistry, for it is founded only on indications, not on any inward understanding of the matter. If we were only unprejudiced, we would acknowledge that something else is needed, that people must be able to understand or realize differently 
if they wish to study chemistry. It is the modern timidity regarding knowledge that has been implanted in people that holds them back from such an impulse. After this a person was ripe. When sufficiently ripe, a person became astronomous, which was a still higher grade. Parenthesis, for to learn something of the stars externally through calculations and the like was considered absolutely insubstantial. Close parenthesis. The neophyte knew that in the stars spiritual beings dwelt who can be known only when physical perception has been overcome, when geometry has also been overcome, when we actually live in the universe and learn the spiritual nature of the stars, the neophyte was a risen one. They could then see how the lunar and solar forces actually work within earthly humanity. I had to endeavor today to help you understand from two sides how Easter was experienced inwardly in the ancient mysteries how this festival did not take place at any fixed season of the year, but rather when someone attained a certain degree of development. Easter was then experienced as a resurrection of the psychic and spiritual nature out of the physical body, as a rising into the spiritual universe. It was thus that those who still knew something of the wisdom of the mysteries, at the time of the mystery of Golgotha, regarded this as a mystery. They said, what would have happened to humanity if the mystery of Golgotha had not taken place? In olden times it was possible for people to be initiated into the secrets of the cosmos, for in quite ancient times they experienced a second birth naturally, as one might say, when they were about thirty years old. At that time at least there were still memories of this, and it was knowledge of the mysteries which preserved in its traditions what an earlier age had experienced. All this had faded and been forgotten by the time of the mystery of Golgotha. Humanity would have become entirely decadent if the power to which initiates of the mysteries rose when they became Christophori had not entered into one Jesus of Nazareth so that it has remained on the earth ever since, and people through Jesus Christ have been able to unite themselves with it. Readers aside, I apologize. I see I've been pronouncing the word Christopher Roy slightly incorrectly, and of readers aside. Thus what rises before our eyes today in the festival of Easter had already formed a part of the history of the mysteries. We will only know the real meaning of Easter when we revive this ancient portion of the history of the mysteries. We will only approach an understanding of the real meaning of Easter when we endeavor, in some way at least, to understand what those who sought initiation experienced in olden times. Such an initiate said to himself, Through initiation I have become aware of how sun and moon work in me in their reciprocal relations to each other. I now know that I have been formed as physical human being in a certain way, that I have eyes of a certain kind, a nose, a whole bodily form constructed within and without as it is. And the fact that this form is able to grow and continue to grow today 
through the nourishment it receives, depends upon the lunar forces. All necessity depends on them. That I am inwardly free, that I can be active as a free being within my bodily nature, that I can transform myself, take myself in hand, depends upon the solar forces, upon the forces of Christ. These I must stimulate if I wish to achieve consciously by my labor what the solar forces accomplished in me under other conditions through a kind of natural necessity. From this we can understand how we still look up to sun and moon today, and from their reciprocal constellations fix the time of the Easter festival. This method of reckoning is something that has remained from former times. People ask, when is the first Sunday, following the first full moon, after the spring equinox? And they fix the Easter festival of the year on the first Sunday after the full moon, indicating thereby that people see something in the structure, in the form of the Easter festival, that comes from the cosmos and has to accord with it. The thought of Easter has to be grasped once again. It can only be understood when people look back to the content of the ancient mysteries, where we were first made aware of what took place when we looked into ourselves, the door of humanity, when we entered into ourselves, living inwardly in ourselves, the three-chambered inner human being, when we made ourselves free, the gate of death, when we moved freely in the spiritual world, we were Christophoros. The mysteries themselves went back to a time when free human development had to find a place. The time has now come when the mysteries have to be found once more. They must be found again. We must realize consciously that preparations have to begin now, by which they can be found again. Out of this consciousness the Christmas conference was held, for it is an urgent necessity that a place should exist on earth where mysteries can once more be established. The Anthroposophical Society, in its further development, must provide the means for a renewal of the mysteries. Your task, my dear friends, must be to cooperate toward this end, doing so out of the right consciousness. This demands that life be considered according to its three stages, according to the stage in which we look into human nature, according to the stage when we strive toward our own inner being, according to the stage in which we are in that state of consciousness, which otherwise we only experience in the reality of external death. As a remembrance of the lesson that has been given here today, let us take with us the following words allowing them to work powerfully in our souls. Quote, Stand before the portal's human lives. Behold on their lintels words of power. Live in the inward souls of humans. Feel in this realm the beginning of worlds. Otherwise the beginning of the world is not always perceived, but only what is in the world. Ponder the earthly end of humanity. Find in it the Spirit's turning point. 
In these words, you have the essence of today's lesson. The end of Lecture 8.